Okay, today is I'm a little loud there, aren't I? Uh, December the 23rd, 2010. I think that's about right, right there, Ken. I didn't use it yesterday. I don't know. They've got the two new mics in there. I don't know if they've put them in, into this system or what. I don't know. Okay. <clears throat> You'll remember that our Christmas play is Monday. This coming Monday. And we'll remind you again Sunday morning. Let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time you've given us to assemble ourselves together to do what's most important in our life, and that is to grow in grace and knowledge. We thank you for the, this place, the time, your, your word, everything that you give us in order to become winners even in the devil's world. There's many distractions this time of year, but we pray that you will help us to keep our focus and our perspective clear, and that is to grow in grace and knowledge. So we pray that you will help us concentrate this evening, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I got my blood up a little bit yesterday, and it hasn't gone down completely. It has gone down some. I was on the Internet, and I saw a news article come in. Uh, it, it was seven minutes after it was announced that I got it on the Internet. You've probably heard about it since then, and that is that this don't ask and don't tell policy was rescinded. Now, I never was a fan of don't ask and don't tell, but it was better than what we have now because now we have homosexuals and lesbians that are openly gay or homosexuals in the military. It's accepted now. And there was a fanfare, there was a lot of uh, clapping and people rejoicing about this. And I don't know, you, you know that the news comes through a filter. And I don't know if any of the neg negative ideas about this was filtered out or if there was none. But if there was none, there should have been. I'm wondering where the outcry of Christians, where, where, the, where the outcry has gone. I haven't heard anything. I'm going to do a little outcrying myself with the bully pulpit that I have. You see, this is so typical of the incrementalism that we are subjected to. It was about seven years ago that they started the uh, don't ask and don't tell. And it was a compromise. And it was a compromise on something that should never be compromised. There is no equivocation with regards to God's word. Homosexuality is a stench in the nostrils of God, and it is a, a abhorrent. And yet, there are so many that think that they are more sophisticated and more knowledgeable than the old ways, and so they knew that they could get, take this incremental step. It wasn't all out recognition of them in the military. But see, they always know when they take that, that, that step, that incremental step, it's just like a camel getting his nose in the tent. Once the camel's nose is in the tent, you know what's next. Here he comes. And so it was just a matter of time, and they did <coughs> uh, vote to approve of this. I had, a, I had the article, and I was going to take it line by line. 
I've had a lot of computer problems here recently. In fact, my computer's in the car right now. I just came from the computer uh, shop. And I had that article, but it didn't, wasn't saved in right format or something because I wasn't on my regular computer. Anyhow, it probably is just as well because it gets me angry every time that I read it. I do remember the first part. The first line said something about, well, uh, the gay and lesbians don't have to lie anymore. I thought, they never had to lie to begin with. It was don't ask and don't tell. If you don't tell, you're not lying. But it makes me shudder to think that as a nation that we have openly defied God in this manner. And I'm wondering, how can God bless a military that has defied Him and have open homosexuals in it? How can He bless a nation that stands by idly, and there's no outcry, there's no rage about such a, a, a horrible thing. Well, I don't know how he can. And I think that this is just another one of the wheels and the cog that drives the machine that is leading us in the wrong direction. And I hope that if this comes up in the time that you are out and about with your family or whoever it is, that you will use discernment, but that you will take a firm stand and let anyone know that one thing that God does not abide, and that is accepting homosexuality. No nation has survived it. No nation has survived anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism and accepting homosexuality are the two death nails of any nation, they are certainly going down. And I'm afraid we are tainted with both. So I don't celebrate that at all, and it's just as well I don't have that because I had a picture of everyone grinning and, and laughing and celebrating. There were cheers. Thank you, Mr. President, as he was signing it. I was thinking, why are they thanking him? He's just approving of it. It was the Congress that passed it. But, of course, he's the, he was a motivating force behind it. He had given his pledge to the homosexual lobbies and so forth when he was running for president. And I, I never thought we'd see this much change in my lifetime. I can remember when that was a... Someone would call them in, in dulcet, hushed tones. You wouldn't even speak of it out loud. I had a very good friend that lived about a block from me I have pictures of us being in, we went to West End Baptist Church and we were in kindergarten. And we, we have a picture together there. And we went all through school, through junior high and high school. And he had a brother that was a homosexual. And back then, you didn't, you didn't even mention, about, you don't even mention Lloyd. His name was Lloyd. And Lloyd moved out to California. And that was in the probably late 50s, early 60s. Look where we've gone from then to now. And if you think that their agenda is going to slow down or stop because they've won another victory, think again. We will continue to spiral out of control deeper and deeper into degeneracy. And as long as the Christians stand by and don't say a peep, who's to stop it? I fear that we are in the in the minority in a big way now. Anyone who is ready to stand firm for the Word of God and make an issue of such issues like this, and it's very controversial, then you're going to be marked out as a zealot, as a fanatic. What should you do when that happens? Rejoice. Right? Well, I was going to have somewhat of a diatribe, and I think I kept a lid on it pretty good. Of course, I didn't have the article. If I had the article, I would be still hitting it pretty hard. Okay, if you'll take your Bibles and open to Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. First Thessalonians chapter... Excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 7, 
chapter 1, verse 7. And you can look up here if you'd like at the notes. Jesus is coming again, is he not? But when you say something like that, most people start to quiver because they don't, they're very confused when it comes to eschatology. They don't know what's coming next. They certainly don't know how to differentiate between the rapture and the second advent. Most people, even Christians that go to, go to churches and go regularly, can't separate the rapture from the second advent. And yet that's what Second Thessalonians is all about. The Thessalonians received a fraudulent letter and they thought that they had missed the rapture and that they were in the tribulation. And so Paul is straightening these things out. And when we get to chapter 2, that's when we're going to hit the details, detail after detail. But right now we're setting it up and in verse 7 and 8, we have the subject matter change a bit. And we're going to be talking about the second advent before we talk about, about the, uh, the tribulation. So in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, well, let's start with verse 6. We don't want to start in the middle of a sentence here. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to use as well, excuse me, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So we already saw that he's going to, when, when he returns at the second advent, there is going to be some payback. There is going to be some payment. We are going to receive blessings. We are going to be glorified along with Jesus Christ. And the idea is the Thessalonians were suffering. Many times we suffer and the, the, the gist of this is hang on. It's worth it. Even though you don't get repaid back necessarily in this lifetime here on earth, certainly God is not deficient in remembering these things. And he is, you're going to get your payback in a good way at the second advent. The other side of that coin is those who were harming and abusing the Thessalonians, the unbelievers, both Jew and Gentile, are going to get paid back at that same time, at the second advent. And they're going to go under what we are starting to study, the baptism of fire. We know what that is. I hope you do, but we're going to look at it even closer. So that's what we're looking at in verse 7. Uh, we finish verse 7. Now, verse 8, here it is up here. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. This is negative volition at God consciousness. So if you don't have that written in your Bible, this would be a good time to do it. Those who do not God refers to those who are negative at God consciousness. Every person who reaches a level of mentality as they grow older start asking certain questions and they start thinking, well, how did this earth get here? How did the mountains get here? How did the sun, the moon, the stars, all this? And they know that, that man could not have created these things. So at that point, the issue is, do you want to know who it is? God is the one that created these, but your volition comes into play. And you can say, well, I really am not interested. I don't care about such things and I'll just go out and party hardy. And you're welcome to do that, but you will be negative at God's consciousness and it's not incumbent upon God to bring you the gospel. But if you are positive, if you do want to know God at that point, then you are going to receive the gospel. God is going to make sure that that's going to take place. And that's what brings us to the second part of this verse. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
This is negative volition at gospel hearing. These are the people who were positive at God consciousness, but when they heard the gospel, no, that's too simple. I don't think so. Nobody else I know believes that, so I'm going to reject that. The word there, obey, is apatho. It means a stubborn, obstinate, a failure to believe. Uh, I don't have it. uh, Vidal, do you have your Libronics open? Spell uh, apatho for her. You have it, Michael? Yeah, and that's the Omega ending. Mm -hmm. Remember, we've studied this word before in John 3.36. He who believes on the Son, what? Has life, has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son. Does that same word, obey. Now the King James Version has it correct. It says, he who does not believe the Son. Believe on the Son. And that's what uh, uh, ah is an alpha negative. Patho means obstinate refusal to believe. Or just, so you, well it means to believe, but you put the, the ah negative in front of it, it means an obstinate to believe. So that's what we're looking at in verse 8. You have two categories of people. Both are unbelievers. One refused to believe God at God consciousness. They're not interested in that. Those that heard the gospel have rejected it. Now let's go one more time to Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Because we're about to get knee-deep into baptism. Or should I say neck-deep? That wouldn't cut it either. We better get underwater, right? We don't want to just get sprinkled. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. This is John the Baptist. And this is a very interesting verse because most people, the great majority of people that you will come in contact with, when it comes to the issue of Baptism, they only think there's one kind, and that's water baptism. That's, I'm talking about dunking or sprinkling or however they do it. Now, they might go to war over whether you should sprinkle or whether you should dunk, and neither one of them has a clue what baptism is about. It's, the mode of baptism isn't even the issue. But they only, my point is they only know of one kind of baptism, and that's water baptism. That's why this verse is so nifty. Matthew 3.11 As for me, that would be John the Baptist, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now let's just stop there for a moment. Already how many baptisms are there? Three baptisms. We have two real baptisms and one ritual baptism there. So if you go to that verse, next time someone wants to tell you how important baptism is, and of course they're talking about water baptism, you might just say, why don't we just go and let the Bible speak to us, Matthew 3.11. Let's look at those baptisms. And I will just about guarantee you that when it comes to the last part of that verse where it says, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, they won't have a clue what that's speaking of. Either one of them. It's a mystery, total void of any information about those two, and that's only two of seven baptisms. If you tell people that there are actually seven different types of baptisms, well, they just might have a cow right on the spot. They might just... Do a meltdown. So, that introduces to us what our subject matter is, the baptism of fire. And this is what we were looking at already a little bit. All all unbelievers were removed from the earth once already by the flood. The next time will be by fire. And there you have the verses, Matthew 3, 11, 12. 
Matthew 25, 31 through 33, Luke 3, 16 through 17, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. So there is a time coming where every unbeliever on earth will be killed. Their bodies will remain on earth to rot and their soul will go into Hades, actually a, a specific compartment of Hades, which is called torments. And there they will await judgment. They don't go to the lake of fire. Nobody goes to the lake of fire yet. That's yet future because they have to be tried. And that trial, trial is going to take place at the end of human history, the great white throne judgment. Every unbeliever of all history will be resurrected and experience the second death. They were already they already were born spiritually dead. They died physically and now the second death is when they are stand before Jesus Christ not as their savior but as their judge. And they will all be found guilty. Their names will not be written in the book of life because that name was erased once they died, not believing in Jesus Christ. And they will be judged according to their what? Works. Sins will not be mentioned. Isn't that something? Isn't, wouldn't that be a newsflash? How would you like to be watching the news one night and they'll say, uh, a newsflash just came in. It has been uh, proven, it has been asserted that no one on this planet will go to hell for their sins. Now we'll move on with the rest of the news. Wouldn't that create a stir? I think that'd be great. People would get people to talking. Because most people think that a person goes to hell because of their sins. It never dawns on them, oh, okay, well, why did Christ come to earth? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he die? Was, did he not succeed? Was it superfluous? Was it not necessary? Of course, no one is condemned for their sins because Christ took care of our sin problem. I hope you might be able to get that message out to someone over this Christmas holiday. Because that's why Christ came to earth. He didn't come to earth to show how to live a good life. Even though he did that, he, had, he was on a message, I mean, on a, um, he was on a mission and his mission was to get to the cross and take care of our sin problem. Number one priority, which he did. Number two, the baptism of fire is compared with what happened during Noah's day in Matthew 24, 36 through 39. I know we've gone there before, but let's go there again. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, look at verse 3. Christ and his disciples had just come out, come, were right at the temple. And the disciples were saying, oh, look at this. Isn't this wonderful? Look at this temple. They were so impressed with the temple. And it was something to be impressed about. Of course, Christ said, well, you all impressed with these? Shortly there won't be a stone left on top of another one. And you, <laughs> they took their standard position, slack-jawed. I mean, they couldn't believe it. The Lord said they were looking at the temple, what a magnificent structure it was. Well, let's, let's just look at it. Look, verse, let's just start with verse 1. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him, as if he didn't notice. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now you know that the disciples must have gasped at that. It was, you know, have you ever heard, excuse me? Isn't that what we'd say today? Excuse me? Did I hear you right? 
This is reading between the lines, but you know that had to go on. And so verse 3. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So he asked him all these questions. And now verse uh, chapter 24 goes on. It's a very in-depth chapter, but we're going to go to verse 36 because this has to do with the comparison that I was making or the Bible makes with the day, the, the baptism of fire with Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Verse 36. Now this is in red letters so you know what Christ was saying it. That makes it more important. I sung in cheek, by the way. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, not the Son, but the Father alone. Now, this verse used to really bother me. He's talking about the second advent here. Now, there's many ways that we can tell that this is the second advent, and there's a lot of people who get confused because they think this is talking about the rapture. Because in a few verses down, it talks about one will be left and one will be gone and all this. But we want to start right here. And I always thought to myself, okay, why won't they know? Why doesn't Jesus know when the second advent is going to take place? What is the deal? I mean, all you have to do is from the abomination of desolation, which is going to be the midpoint of the tribulation, and that's going to be three and a half years into it, all you have to do is start counting the days, and at the end of three and a half years later, which is going to be the entire seven-year period, then you can know that Christ is coming back. So why wouldn't they know this? Good question, huh? The reason I went to those first Verses, especially verse 3 to begin with, is to give you a hint. I can see the washboards. Oh, I'd love to get, see those gears turning. What dispensation is this? It's the age of the Jews, is it not? He is talking to people who, how much did they know about the rapture? Zip. Can't be talking about the rapture because they didn't know about it yet. The reason they don't know, and the Christ said that no one knows, not even him. And, of course, Christ is speaking from his humanity. There were a lot of things that Christ had to learn in his humanity. Of course, in his deity, he knew everything. But he's speaking from his humanity. He says, nobody knows. Angels don't know. I don't know. Only God the Father knows this one. Here's the key. No one knew then because they didn't know when the church age was going to begin. And they certainly didn't know when it was going to end. The mystery church, it was a mystery to them. So how could anyone know when the second advent was going When Christ was at first, the church had to begin. If you know when the church was going to end, how are you going to say the church the church being there for? Nobody knew. That's the end of John and the end of Taught in their and the, their age at This was very confusing. The reason why I'm reading about the rapture. He's taught, and they are all in the of the age of the will be at the end of six, which will be that return. That answers the question. Out of problem with this, they don't know enough to even that. The key is the Bible. This is about the Jews. Back to verse 3. When will be all toward They're not these Jewish But then not church. He says, have anything to do with the church? Not the Jacob's trouble. There is the curse. Verse 34. We see, okay, we know for certain. Verse because I now command in the Jewish commandment, forget about this. It has nothing to do with the rapture. So we that is something that's going on. Verse 38. And this was flirting for marrying and giving in children. That, and they did not understand that it came. So, so shall come on. 
button in his arc.
in Matthew, verse 36, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other will be left. That's in brackets showing it's probably not in the original. But anyway, verse 37, and answering, these are the disciples when Christ was telling them this, the disciple says, where, Lord? In other words, where are they going to be taken? He's not asking where are the ones that are left. You know where the ones are left are. They're right where they were before. He's saying, where are they going to be taken? And then we have, and he said to them, where the body is, there also will, be, will, will the vultures be gathered. So look at this. He's talking about a body being left. What's going to happen to the baptism of fire when all unbelievers are taken? What's going to happen to the bodies? They're going to just be there for the worms and the flies and the animals and the vultures. Are there going to be any bodies left at the rapture? <laughs> no. If we're still here, in these bodies, when Christ returns, the Bible says in the twinkling of an eye, instantly we're going to be transformed into a body that is like Christ. We'll receive a resurrection body. They call that being translated. You're not resurrected unless you die. The ones that have died are going to be resurrected. Those that are living are going to be translated. And the whole kit and caboodle, every believer, boom, their bodies are going to meet Christ in the air. Their new resurrection body. No bodies left for vultures, is there? Again, this is impossible to have anything whatsoever to do with the rapture, even though you have some taken and some left. It's describing what's going to happen at the baptism of fire. Those who are taken, their souls will leave their bodies and go into torments and wait for judgment. In the bodies, this is what Christ is saying. Wherever the body is, there's the vultures will be also. The bodies will be left, and the vultures will have a feast. You got that? Okay. Back to our notes up here. There are several parables that illustrate the baptism of fire. The wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, 24 through 30 and 36 through 40. The good and the bad fish, Matthew 13, 47 through 50. The ten virgins, Matthew 25, 1 through 13. The sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. The talent test, Matthew 25, 14 through 30. We're not going to go through all those, but... Look, they're all in Matthew. Matthew had a lot to say about that. There will be a Jewish baptism of fire where Christ deals with Jewish believers in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse... Huh? Did I say uh, believers? Okay, sorry. There will be a uh, Jewish baptism of fire where Christ will be... Uh, will deals with Jewish unbelievers, Ezekiel 20... Uh, 34 through 38. Let's go there. I want you to get a flavor for this baptism of fire. Ezekiel 20, 34 through 38. <clears throat> we have another key here that this is talking about the second advent and not the rapture. You know what it is before we even get to Ezekiel chapter 20? What's one of our keys? We know that Ezekiel 20, verse 34 through 38, is going to be talking about the second advent and not the rapture because of why? It, well, yeah, they didn't know any... The whole, in the Old Testament, there's not a hint of the church age. So what would Ezekiel be doing describing the rapture? He's not. Yes. This is Jewish male. <laughs> uh, Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 34. And I shall bring, uh, bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I shall bring you into, uh, into the wilderness of the peoples and there I shall enter into judgment with you face to face. 
As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. And I shall make you pass under the rod, and I shall bring you into bond, into the bond of the new covenant. And I shall purge you from the rebels and those who transgress against me. And I shall bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. You also see it in Isaiah chapter 1. Let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 25. Isaiah 1 25. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. See, this is a good description of separating believers from unbelievers. The unbelievers are the dross. I was, I probably will tell my age on this, but years ago I was a plumber. And they, when I was a plumber, way back then, 35, 40 years ago, whatever it was, uh, they used to have lead, and you would have a pot, an iron pot, and you'd have a furnace under it, and you would heat what was called ingots of lead. You'd put them in there in bars, and it would melt it. And then you would take that, you had a ladle, and you would take that lead, and you would pour it in joints between the pipes. And then you would take hammer and a chisel and knock all this lead in there, and this would held the, everything together. But when you had that going, that lead, that fire under it, always there was a, some scum type stuff on top. And before you would get that lead and pour the lead in the joint, you would have to take the back of that ladle, put it over the side, and then you would scoop it up and toss it out. That was the dross. So I'm very, very um, aware of what dross is. Dross is no good. It's, it's just slag. It's nothing. And that's what this is talking about. And it's the heat. It's that... What, what is... The judgment that's coming is always used in the metaphors of fire. And it separates the dross from what is pure. And this is a good analogy of what's going to happen at the second advent, the baptism of fire. It's a separation that's taking place there. That was verse 25, verse 26. Then I will restore your judges as at the first... And your counselor as at the beginning. After that you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. When is this talking about? Yeah, it's talking about when Christ returns and he starts the millennial rule. Everything is going to start over fresh and new again. All the dross, all unbelievers, all that, all that canker is gone. Verse 27, Zion will be redeemed with justice and her Repentant ones with righteousness. So there's a, a verses around that show that as the Jewish baptism of fire. Now I have point number five up here. There will also be a Gentile baptism of fire found in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. All unbelievers, both Jew and Gentiles, will be placed in a compartment of hell called torments. I already gave you that. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. <clears throat> but when the Son of Man comes, this is verse 31, in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Remember, no angels coming at the rapture. Christ is coming alone. Here we have... Him coming with angels at the second advent. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from uh, one from the other as, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Sheep are what? Believers. Goats are unbelievers. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did, you, when did we see you hungry and feed you are thirsty and give you drink. See, these are believers that survived the tribulation. And they're saying, Lord, when did we... I don't remember feeding you. I don't remember going and seeing you in prison. What are you talking about? And then he answers them. He says uh, in verse 38... No, 37. Then the righteous will answer him, saying... Uh, Lord, what did we do when we were hungry and thirsty and you gave us all this? And he says, when did you see a stranger invite you in and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers. Brothers are Jews, Jewish believers in the tribulation. When you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So it's these believers that helped other believers who were suffering. These are Gentile believers. And they who, the Gentile believers who helped the Jewish believers in the tribulation are going to be blessed exceedingly for doing so and it's because they're putting their life on the line. You help out a Jew in the tribulation and you're toast if Satan and his, and his demons, army and so forth, can come at you. Then verse 41, we'll end on this one. Well, I don't know, maybe we won't end, but it's really important. Put a star by this one. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which, was, which has been prepared for you, uh, excuse me, for the devil and his angels. The reason that verse is so important is because this is the verse that tells us that Satan and his angels have already gone to court, they've been found guilty, and they have been sentenced. The sentence hadn't been carried out yet because there was another creature that had to come along that God was going to demonstrate his righteousness through, and that was a guy called Adam. You got that? See, this verse says, they're going to be cast into eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a done deal. They're going there. They've already been sentenced. But man resolves the angelic conflict. God created another creature, lesser than angels, but has, but has volition just like the angels do to demonstrate to the whole universe that he is righteous and just. And then you can, just for the sake of time, we go through verse 45. Then he answered them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these, the least of these, you did it also to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's what's going to happen. That we're, we're looking at the baptism of fire. There's so many things that go on there. But we don't want to just brush right on through these verses. They're too important. I want you to understand what the baptism of fire is. I was completely ready. I have on the computer here all about baptism, the seven different types of baptism. There's four real baptisms. There's three ritual baptisms. What the difference is, why baptism is such a hot-button issue, the reason is because it's not translated. You know, like pistis, the word pistis in the Greek is, comes into the English as faith. It's translated. But they took the word baptizo in the Greek and they didn't translate it into English. They transliterated it. That means they just took the letters in the Greek and they brought them into the English. Chicken. They were afraid to translate it. Why didn't they translate it? If they would have translated it, it would have made things a lot easier. 
But the fact is that they use the word baptizo, which is not a translation, it's just a transliteration, and it's the same word for both a real and a ritual baptism, just adds confusion. But we're going to get through the confusion because it's really not hard. It's easy once you understand it. Some of you probably have heard this before, but you might be a little fuzzy on it, and this is not to be something to be fuzzy about. I'm out of time. But we'll get back to this baptism business after Christmas. Let's see, will it be? The, no, it won't be the new year yet, will it? Okay. We're, we're going to get into baptism before this year is out. We're going to get into it. I don't know when we're going to get out of it. So, well, let me wish everyone a very Merry Christmas. And I hope that all of us will keep our priorities straight and look for opportunities. They're there if you're looking for them. And I'm not talking about picking a fight. I'm not talking about lording it over someone. I'm talking about genuine discernment out of love. Have your radar out. If they're negative and they want to change the subject, let them do it. Don't force anything. But look for opportunities. Let's close. Father, we're so thankful that you are in control of all things. History is just the outpouring of what you already have decreed, what you already know, and how wonderful it is. We thank you for sending our Lord. He voluntarily came, took on the body of a man, a lesser creature, went through the horrors of the cross, rose again, and now offers anyone who trusts in Him and Him alone the gift of eternal life. We thank You for that. We pray that You will help us to keep our spiritual momentum moving forward by consistently taking in Your Word. For we pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.